Welcome back to Upfront, the podcast with me, Katie Hannan. Two weeks have passed since the riots in Dublin, triggered by that stabbing attack on children and a childcare worker outside a Gael skull on Parnell Square. Those events have sparked a sharper focus on the figure stoking anger and expressing anti-LGBT and anti-immigrant views online and increasingly on the street. How wide and deep is Ireland's far-right ecosystem? And to what degree is the debate here being driven by far-right activists from outside this country? And with the latest opinion poll revealing that 28% of those polled would consider voting for a party or a candidate who holds strong anti-immigration views, how far away are we from seeing views that were until recently taboo in polite political company turning up in mainstream politics here? On this week's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Patrick Hermanson, who has done incredible work going undercover to infiltrate far-right groups in the US and the UK. He currently works as a researcher at the anti-racist watchdog Hope Not Hate, where he has recently been investigating how the Telegram platform is being used to spread far-right ideology. It might be useful for our listeners uh, if we just nail down what are we talking about when we talk about Far right. That's that's language that we, we, we have only started using here in the last couple of years. So I and, and Hope Not Hate, the organization I work for, look at, at far right groups and the extreme right, which is groups who um, challenge democracy, um, has racism as a, a core belief, uh, believe that people are different and value different based on their biological traits and cultural background. A lot of that sounds like Nazism. A lot of it is. That's definitely a big chunk of, of the people we look at. And it's the sort of people I spent spent a year undercover with. A lot of people, uh, we have a, a big debate in Ireland at the moment where some people feel that if they express any discomfort or any concerns around immigrants arriving into the country, that they all get called far right, that, that you know, that, that, that our definition of far right has gotten too, too broad. The people I'm talking about holds racism as, as a core belief. It's not necessarily about migration. Uh, some of them are, are quite OK with migration if it comes from white countries. So the difference is, is how you value different uh, kinds of people with, with different backgrounds. And if that comes down to um, race, uh, or an idea of race or religion, um, then it will end up in the far right uh, category. Let's talk about your undercover work. Let's go back to that. Um, so first, what? How did you end up doing that? Wh- what brought you to that? Open Eye uses undercover work as a way to um, understand far right groups and individuals in depth. Um, these are stigmatized ideas still. Um, even though they're becoming more mainstream, these groups want to present the different pictures outwards um, to, to get acceptance and, and mainstream support and be invited to uh, important rooms. Um, but behind the scenes, they often hold much more extreme, uh, explicitly racist, anti-Semitic, conspiracy theorist views or violent views. Um, and we want to show people uh, and, and the public what these people really think and, and, and what they're really after. OK, so explain to us wh- how you went about that. You, you, you set yourself up as a, a student with an interest in this. 
in order to get inside a group, you have to create an identity to separate separate your real self from from this new person. Uh, that's for security reasons, but also to create an, a person they would want to recruit. So you have to have a backstory that that makes sense why you came to these views, um, which you actually don't hold. Um, I was a student; that was that was reality, and and you don't want to separate it too much. But I was upset with. Um, progressive ideas at the university campus. Um, I come from Sweden and Sweden at this point in time had um, uh, had been made a, kind of an example of um, a country with high migration that that led to um, lots of issues. So I was I put myself up as being quite upset with this migration um, and now I was here studying in, in London. Um, and and I wanted to do something about it. And yeah, how do, like do you just initially just rock up to a meeting, or how do you get your initial entree into one of these groups? In this case, I started engaging with them on social media. So I commented on their YouTube channels and their Facebook, and just you know thumbs up and and said I was interested in things uh, to 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 sort of bolster up the identity a little bit. Uh, so that I got a bit of recognition essentially and then eventually I I sent an email and I asked can I come Um, and that's enough really but it doesn't mean that you have access a meeting is fairly public especially where I started uh, which is not necessarily a very violent group Um, but you don't have access to anything uh, and from there I then move deeper and deeper inside and to adjacent more extreme groups so you became sort of a trusted a supporter. Exactly. I uh, spent a lot of time with them and and learned a lot about them. And, and just by spending time with people, you build trust. That's that's how relationships work, really. What, what was the actual group that you ended up getting deep, deep inside? The, the main group is called the London Forum, um, which is, um, or was rather, um, an, an organization that aspired to uh, present themselves as the intellectual face um, of the far right in the UK. Um, they tried to intellectualize racism, use statistics and and data to uh, show that there were differences between white and black people, essentially. And they organized conferences, which were very secret and very internationally attended. So people from Europe and the US came and spoke at these conferences. Nothing was filmed. Um, member lists were very tightly controlled. There were background checks on every everyone who attended. Uh, locations were secret, and and essentially a, a sort of a, a hub uh, in this segment of the far right in Europe and and the world actually. Uh, and it happened about twice a year, but around this there were lots of other events as well. Um, and we wanted to get to the core of that, and 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 that's uh, that's where I ended up. Over this period, when these people believed that you were of the same belief uh, as them, there were some scary moments. There was some absolutely some of, some of the uh, experiences are quite scary. Uh, while most meetings are really just talk, um, those could sometimes spiral into very explicit endorsement of of violence and hate. I sat in a meeting where they applauded the the Pulse night shooting in Florida, for example, 
And as a gay man, that was that was quite a scary moment. And and there are other sort of near misses and and times where um, they speak about what they would do to anti-fascists and, and journalists. Um, then I went to uh, the U.S. and while they hold the same ideas because of laws and such, they have access to to weapons there. So I went to meetings and social um, things like barbecues uh, on the on the west coast of of, of the U.S. Um, with uh, with members who who identify them very explicitly as national socialists, Nazis, um, who were all armed. Um, they imagined a, a coming war between white people and black people in the U.S. And they were sort of training for it. Um, and um, you saw violence as inevitable, really, and, and, and had the capacity to do it as well. And while I was with them, um, they all had weapons on them. Uh, they talked about what they would do to, to anti-fascists and black people and Jews and migrants. Um, so those moments, especially since I was in a quite a remote place, um, couldn't just get out of there. Uh, you have to get there by car. And I didn't even have a car because I was driven there by, by, by some of them. Um, that, that naturally kind of raises your, your stress levels. That sounds like an understatement, I have to say. But like, did you ever come close to being rumbled? Did did you ever feel like your identity might, you know, your mask might have slipped? Um, yeah, I made mistakes. And we find that 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 happens. We've run many other sources and people often make small mistakes. It's usually fine. Um, I accidentally said my real name once. Um by sort of reflex when someone came and, and shook my hand in a pub one evening. Um, and then I thought it was over. But I just sort of managed to talk myself out of it. Um, and, and the thing is with this world is that everyone is paranoid. So lots of people actually go under fake names and they don't want to tell much about themselves because they are afraid of people like me, essentially. Uh, so during these meetings, they talk about hope and hate. I had some... Sometimes someone come up to me and tell me, don't talk to that guy over there. We think he's hope, not hate. Um, and, and they are, there's these paranoid messages that goes around saying, did you speak to this person? Do you trust them? And then they will kick them out. Um, so, so, so you're always sort of on the feeling that you might be rumbled. And that's stress is, is, uh, does a lot of, of damage to you over, over the months, I think. It's a crazy thing to do, I guess. It's it's very educational. You understand other people in in an interesting way, I think. And um, I think this, uh, but one of the scariest takeaways, really, how how it sort of becomes normal. Like you hate the ideas, but you sort of stop being angry after that because they just keep saying the same thing every day. You meet them, and it sort of just goes over your head after a while. And sort of that that feeling that it's just normal. It's just normal, and you don't react. And I think that's the biggest danger in all of these ideas that we still sort of stop. Stop reacting to them. Did you get to like any of them? As individuals, they're just people. Often they have quite sad backstories and and you can have some empathy for them. Uh, but no, I never liked them. It's very hard when they uh, 
cannot go five minutes without expressing very extreme ideas. I should tell people this this is going back to 2017, is it? Um, and this was the first year of Trump's presidency. I joined right before and, um, and, and sort of experienced the first year on, inside. Um, and sort of what that did to the, the movement, even in the UK, was quite interesting. Yes. And, and tell me what, because I, for a lot of people, I suppose this is the Trump presidency is kind of ground zero for the mainstreaming of some of these ideas. Uh, ideas that would have been, you know, absolutely taboo in in mainstream political discourse started to appear, uh, you know, once Trump was installed in the White House, many would say. Absolutely. I I think it it can easily look like that. And and there's some truth to that. Um, What we saw was an extreme um, sense of confidence from uh, far-right organizations across the board and activists. So um, because I joined right before and quite quickly made myself quite deep inside um, and ended up uh, being in a position where I did background checks on new members in in one of these organizations, um, I could see um, what changed. And, and the reason why I got that role was essentially they had too few people to... Uh, do background checks on on new members because they got so many applications. But also sitting there and asking these people, they have to motivate why they want to join and where their views comes from. Um, You got a really interesting insight in in what had happened. And many of them refer to Trump. They say, uh, you know, I never really got around to it, but I feel like it's more okay now, more or less, many said. So even, so in the UK, Trump the arrival of Trump on, on the scene in the, in the White House had a massive emboldening uh, effect on people. Or Trump improved their confidence uh, to an unmeasurable degree. Um, he made it feel like they were winning. Uh, and that's what people said. It feels like we are on the winning side. Uh, because when they came to me and said, uh, I, I want to join this organization, I've been a nationalist my whole life. And then I asked them, but you are 45. So why haven't you done anything till now? And then they say Trump. Uh, it's changed. The mood has changed. It feels like we are the winning side. I'm less afraid of what this could do to my family if it got out, to my employer if it got out. So, so his effect was not at all limited to the US. Obviously, 2017, that's just post-Brexit as well. And, you know, a huge success for UKIP, which would have been obviously on the, the further right side of British politics was that was that did that play into it Brexit definitely helped um and there was this idea of like a wave of 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 far-right parties in Europe uh that could have won as well with Front National and in France and stuff and that didn't really go as they had hoped uh but there was this sense that there was Trump there was Brexit something's changing uh in our society uh, in in their direction. Okay, so you, as you say, you spoke to a lot of the new recruits to this group. Is there a type of person that's drawn to a group like this? Actually, it's it's very hard to uh, give a clear profile. Uh, it's why it's quite diverse. When uh, except for it, it being ninety eight percent white men. Uh, but beyond that, they have a lot of different backgrounds. 
there were advertisement executives, high up uh, people, and there were uh, people who worked as a parking guard. There were people with families or people without families. Um, there were people who, I mean, one of the, the, the closest connections I made was with a man who is a portrait painter. Um, there are PhD uh, doctor people, and there are people who, who didn't finish college. It's, it's very hard to say that it's one profile. Um, what attracts them is this, the social aspects of it, I think, and besides the ideology. Um, and the feeling of being in a small elite group that, that knows something more about society and dares to, to say what they actually think. Um, that's an, just an attractive feeling of being part of a small uh, group like that, I think. Why is it so male? Why is it so male? Um, because the far right has one of its kind of core ideas or feelings is is that one of the big issues in society is 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 its demasculinization. So um, the strong, potent kind um, of nation where where men took charge and we went to war and won the wars, um, we lost that, become softened by ideas around wokeism and feminism and LGBT rights. And, and that's, that's essentially what all problems comes down to, according to them, uh, as well as migration. But the migration is an effect of that softening where we're not being able to just say, no, this is not okay. We say, oh, okay then, uh, because um, as a society, we lost the ability to say a strong yes or a strong no, everything is, is an okay then. Uh, and that's an that's an outcome they believe of um, sort of false ideas about our um, equality, according to them, um, and progressive movements. And um, for men, then um, there's this perceived loss of status, as in, if I was born 50 years ago, I would uh, be this strong father figure. Uh, with clear authority and and my father maybe had that and my grandfather had that why can't i have it so men it feels threatened essentially the conversations you would have had and you know the social outings around this group at these groups do you do you do you get a sense is there a, 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 does anybody ever challenge is it all people supporting each other and pushing each other further in, in, in this process? One of the big problems, I think, is, is the lack of challenge and, and I think radicalization comes from there. So um, there's very little challenging when it comes to broad ideas around racism and even violence, uh, which means that someone can always push the boundary a little bit more extreme uh, without that being challenged by anyone. And then that becomes the new normal. And then someone pushes it a little bit more and then a little bit more. Uh, so on, on big things, um, feminism, uh, racism, um, anti-migrant ideas, all of those things are, they are, there's quite a consensus. And even if someone is a few notches harder than you, um, you won't challenge it. And then at the top of these groups, this is the, the important part of, of your research and what you discovered, is the win is 
when they hear their language, you know, in, in parliaments, in, in Congress. That's what it's about. They call it moving the Overton window, which is the limitations of what is acceptable debate in society. They want to shift that in their direction so that um, racism essentially becomes, um, or nationalism at least, becomes acceptable uh, rhetoric uh, in public and in, in media and in politics. And that's what they saw in Trump. Um, they perceived a similar thing in Brexit. Um, and and they perceived a similar thing from, from their friends and colleagues, I think, as well. Um, and they, they aim to do that through through media, through through working with academia, which is one of the problematic uh, ideas to, to get their ideas out into public spaces and gradually, because they don't believe you can shift it from one day to the next, um, change how people think about these things and feel confident in expressing racist ideas, essentially. And to what degree is social media then facilitating this? Social media is central. Um, they produced YouTube videos, many of them. Some some of the big speakers at these conferences uh, were YouTubers. Um, they are sort of celebrities in this um, movement. They reach young people. Um, it's also very safe, as in you watch those YouTube videos by yourself for hours and hours uh, at home. Um, and that can gradually radicalize people and, and they see the potential in that. Okay, now tell me about this report you've just done on what's happening on Telegram. Because we, we I, I'm, I don't know how familiar you are with our recent events here, but we had a, an event, a stabbing, a very uh, traumatic, violent event, uh, stabbing involving children, uh, which was then taken up by some far-right actors and it we had huge writing on the streets of Dublin. And in the wake of that, we understood that some of the incitement, uh, the inflammation, you know, the, the forces inflaming this were uh, messages being posted on Telegram. So what can you tell us about what you discovered from your research? I can begin just saying what Telegram is. It's a chat app uh, which allows you to have very, very large groups of people inside of them. Um, it looks like WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger maybe, but it allows much larger groups. So what we find is that because of its speed as well, it reaches a lot of people fast and you can engage with it and you can share very easily. Things spread in incredibly fast on, on Telegram. Over the last couple of years, it's it's turned into both an outreach platform, so a replacement for Twitter or YouTube, um, but also an organizational platform, which I think is what you saw in, in Dublin. Is it, is it like very large groups and then subsets of that? Is that how, is that how it's organized online or how, how some of the, the bigger players in this organize themselves? Most countries, and, and there are international groups as well, um, have have a, have a few main channels um, that you can put into different segments of the far right, which are differently extreme, more or less, and, and have a bit different direction. Some are more conspiracy theorists, some are more uh, anti-migrant, for example. Uh, these can have thousands of members, tens of thousands um, is common. Uh, you can often not engage in them. They're essentially too large to have an, an ongoing discussion. 
but from them, uh, they link to local groups uh, and they link to smaller groups uh, of, of different sorts. Um, and in those, it, it can be a couple of dozen members or a, or a couple of hundred members. Um, but part of, of the thing with Telegram is that it's very easy to access these ones. Um, and, and that's what it opened up, really. The, the possibility of viewing propaganda for, for an organization or from, a, from an individual to directly engage with the community around it. Um, and that's something we've seen that has really helped um, spur radicalization on, uh, especially by young people, and especially in times like that when there's lots of emotion and anger uh, going around. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, though, because if it is this sort of, it's obviously encrypted and we're told, you know, you you know, in terms of talking about criminal charges for people that might have been involved in those riots, uh, we were saying it might be difficult because you're dealing with an encrypted channel um, or encrypted platform. Are you saying that it is actually quite easy to infiltrate these channels on Telegram? It's not very hard. In at least the, the the medium sized groups and the larger ones, they are fairly open and inviting, and that's part of the problem. You can essentially just search for them and join, or join one of these larger ones and find a link to one of these uh, chat groups. It's 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 easy to find, and and that's part of the problem. But it also means you can investigate it. The problem is that users on it are often anonymous, so you just have a username. There's no phone number, uh, and people often don't use their real names. Did you come across much Irish content in your research, content referring to Ireland? Absolutely. It, it, uh, all of these groups are very international in, in their outlook. They view it, immigration um, essentially as like a, a civilizational problem. And because they view race as, as so central, um, they're concerned with all white countries in in quotes so you will find content from ireland and the uk and and sweden and france and 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 spain all mixed together um what that does is that it helps feed this image that there's always something bad happening somewhere um it it helps feed the idea that there's a real crisis happening if they can't find something bad happening uh, in your city there will be something bad happening in another city uh, so it's a constant onslaught of, of negative um, propaganda. We had a, an opinion poll here last weekend where those polls said 28% of them said that they would consider voting for a, a party with a strongly anti-immigrant uh, platform, which is twice as many as, as answered that question that way just two years ago. It doesn't surprise me, of course. It's been a massive amount of extremely negative um, coverage. And of course, it was an extremely traumatic event. Um, the question is um, how much attention it gets versus other things. And if 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 the perpetrator would have come from the other side, and obviously there are violence towards migrants as well, that doesn't get this attention and doesn't bring about these feelings. And there's a question to ask there why it doesn't. Um, but overall, in, in most European countries now, migration is one of the the most salient issues. If you ask people, name your five 
uh, most important topics for the next election. Migration is often up there. Um, and to some degree, it, it's an effect of its um, presence in media consistently over a long period of time. Do you think mainstream media are handling this as it should be handled? It's a very hard question. It's important to be nuanced here and, and you know, accurately represent um, people's feelings, which are obviously uh, extremely scared. And, and it, it, these were kids. Um, you can't ignore something like that. Um, it's It needs all the coverage, of course. Um, at the same time, it is it is really hard to um, also make people feel listened to because there are real fears sometimes. And um, how can we sort of represent people's fears when it comes to migration or, or deal with them in a way that doesn't turn into hate and that is more constructive and that maybe looks at the underlying reasons. Often what we find in our, our, our research is that um, economic anxiety and, and other forms of anxiety for the future um, leads to distrust towards migrant, for example. Um, but those things comes from years of austerity um, and, and other issues and, and to sort of disconnect these different things. Um, that is a, is a problem in media coverage in, in most countries, I think. That kind of adds, feeds into my next question because the other statistic that we saw in that opinion poll was that 46% of people polled said that they held views on immigration that they would be slow to say in public. When we do focus groups, for example, and, and polls, um, People are not necessarily positive or excited about migration, um, but they do get quite upset with politicians like uh, here in the UK, like Suella Braverman, that that um, Suella Braverman, who's who's used extreme anti-migrant language. So um, there's there's a way to talk to people who have anti-migrant views and and try to figure out where it comes from and um, what could be done to um, relieve that anxiety. Just finally, Patrick, from your research, I mean, we saw what's happened in Argentina recently. We see what's happening politically in, in the Netherlands. How close are we uh, to seeing these kind of ideas take hold in, in mainstream politics, do you think, in, in, in places like Ireland? This is uh, a quite like a depressing question in lots of ways. We are seeing the rise of them in almost every European country, uh, with some spots of, of, of it being challenged as well. Um, but there is a normalization of, of, of these ideas ongoing. And it's very important not to be complacent and believing that we are somehow different. Ireland or the UK, we have never had a fascist party in government and therefore we are somehow immune towards it. Um, that's a very dangerous way of thinking, I believe. So we always have to be vigilant. And that's why organizations like Open Hate keeps trying to raise awareness of these issues. You think that there is an element of complacency in how we how we're looking at it at this point? I believe that many of us believe that um, we are somehow immune to these things. People have bad ideas about migration, but it's going to stop there. Um, 
I don't think there is a, a specific point where it's just going to stop. If we keep talking this way about groups of people, um, it's going to expand and get worse uh, and, and head in that direction until someone pushes back. Okay. Patrick, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much. And that was Patrick Hermanson. Thanks for listening to Upfront, the podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can message us on social media at RTE Upfront or via WhatsApp. Our WhatsApp number is 87 And don't forget to tune in to Upfront on Monday evening at 10.35 on RT1.